Well, good morning again. Uh, as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 37 today. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for the last several weeks, and today we're going to look at three more passages that hang together by this formula Jesus continues to use. He is fulfilling God's law by showing us the true depth of the righteousness that he calls us to as his disciples. But before we hear from God's word, we need to ask for God's help. So would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this text today, we're going to go in sequence through each of those divisions of passages. First, we're going to look at what Jesus says about lust in verses 27 through 30, and then about divorce in verses 31 to 32, and finally about oaths in verses 33 through 37. The first section that we're looking at today is a very similar passage to the one that we looked at last week. Jesus uses this same formula to begin with, where he begins with, you have heard that it was said, and quotes an Old Testament commandment. There, in the previous passage, Jesus quoted the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Here, in verse 27, he quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And then, like last week, he follows with the second half of this formula, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And just like last week, we need to ask the question, what is Jesus doing with God's Old Testament law? 
Is Jesus correcting God's law? Is he doing something completely new, establishing a new moral code of some kind? And the answer we must give to those is no. Jesus did not come to abolish God's law, he said, but to fulfill it. And so here, just as he did with murder, he is teaching us the true and full sense of God's commandment against adultery. God's law has never just been about refraining from external actions or avoiding public and outward sins. His law has always been directed at our whole persons, our actions, and our words, and the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And the thought and intention of the heart that Jesus addresses here is lust. He says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. And because Jesus has the whole Old Testament in the background of what he is saying here, it needs to be said at the outset that according to the Bible, sex is not inherently sinful. When God created humanity, he created us as sexual beings. He created us as male and female designed uh, and designed us for sexual relationship. And God gives this to the husband and the wife. That sexual intimacy is part of the very good of creation that God declares. God doesn't prohibit the existence of sexual desire, but he confines it to that relationship, that marriage relationship between husband and wife. The primary reason for sex given in Genesis is procreation, having children. But that isn't the only reason. The Bible tells us that God also created sex for pleasure and for companionship. All three of those things are related to one another. This isn't the only thing going on, but it is one of the things going on in that statement that the two shall become one flesh in Genesis 2.24. Sex is not just a joining of bodies, but a joining of souls, a joining of whole persons. Just as God intends the marriage relationship to be exclusive, he intends sex to be confined to that exclusive marriage relationship. So we need to be clear that sex is not wrong. It is not an icky, dirty thing that we have to hold our nose and put up with if we want to have children. No, it is a gift of God to husband and wife. It is a part of the goodness of God's creation. And so God's prohibition of sex outside of marriage isn't a degrading of sex, but it is, an actu it is actually an upholding of sex. It treats sex as a precious gift to be protected and guarded, not a cheap commodity to be bought and sold and played with. So that is in the background here as Jesus talks about the seventh commandment. But even in the realm of the heart and the thoughts, we need to clarify what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying it is wrong to see and acknowledge beauty. It is not wrong to notice that a man is handsome or that a woman is beautiful. Again, God created our physical nature. In fact, four times in Scripture, God himself, as the author of Scripture, says that someone has a beautiful or handsome physical appearance. The acknowledgement or noticing of beauty is not what Jesus is prohibiting here. 
No, what he prohibits is lust. Looking at a woman or man with lustful intent. This is a disordered desire, a longing after someone who is not yours. We may notice the beauty of a woman or the handsomeness of a man, but lust is lingering upon them. It turns from, she is beautiful, to, I want her. In the moment that that desire appears, lust settles in on the idea instead of turning your mind to something else. Instead of changing your mind to something else, you nurse and indulge that desire for the person. Jesus says, you have already committed adultery with her or with him in your heart. This is exactly what Jesus said about murder. He is teaching us again that the law is not simply a line that you can get close to, but better not cross. God's law is a direction that you are facing, a trajectory, a path that you are walking on. Lust for someone other than your spouse is walking on the same path that ends in adultery. Fantasizing about someone other than your spouse is a sin. It gets worse when we realize that this doesn't just happen accidentally. We also seek out avenues for our lust in lewd shows and movies and even pornography. You may begin going to the gym to work out, but then you purposely face one direction instead of another with the intent to sin. Righteousness, Jesus says, is not simply avoiding physical sex with someone else. It is avoiding all thoughts, looks, and longings on the path in that direction. Jesus again drives home the seriousness of our sin, sins that we often think of and speak of as no big deal. Jesus says that even the smallest of these sins are deserving of our whole body being thrown into hell. His focus in verses 29 and 30 is how we should fight our sin, but don't miss what he says about where our sin will send us if it remains unchecked. Read those verses with me, starting in 29. He says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This ought to sober us. It ought to correct any misunderstanding we have about small sins and big sins. It's not just the murderers and the adulterers who deserve hell. There may be degrees of sin, but there is no such thing as a sin that isn't a condemning sin. Jesus is telling us that lustful thoughts and intentions intentions are deserving of condemnation just as much as adultery. They are sins against God. They are violations of his good and holy and righteous will. And so they are deserving of the punishment of eternity in hell. It is not just adultery, but everything on that path to adultery that is deserving of condemnation. Lustful thoughts, seeking out and indulging in all forms of pornography, seductive looks 
and speech and flirting when you or the other person is married. These are not small sins. These are damning sins. And if you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, this ought to do two things for you. First, it ought to show you the intensity and depth of Jesus' love for you. Do you remember the story in Luke chapter 7? Luke tells us that a woman of the city, which probably means prostitute, comes to Jesus when he is at a dinner party, and she begins weeping and washing his feet with her tears and anoints him with ointment. The Pharisees at the party complain that she is a sinner and Jesus should know that. But Jesus' response is to declare her forgiven of her sins, praise her for her love, and rebuke the Pharisee for how little love he has shown to Jesus. His concluding remark is that he who is forgiven little loves little. The point of the story is not actually that the Pharisees were forgiven little and the woman was forgiven much. The point is that the Pharisee thinks he has been forgiven little and the woman knows that she was forgiven much. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to save his people from our sins. And you need to know the full depth of what Jesus saved you from. He has saved you from every lingering glance, from every deviant thought. He has paid for every flirtatious interaction, every sexual encounter, whether it was 50 years ago or last week, and every adulterous affair you have ever had. Jesus is not a little savior for little sinners. He is able to save to the uttermost. Not one of your sexual sins and not the whole mass of your sexual sins are beyond his forgiveness if you trust in him. As Christians, when we see how vast our sin is, it ought to astonish us at how vast his love and salvation are for us. That's the first thing that this should do to us as Christians. The second thing this should cause you to do if you're a Christian is to see the seriousness of your sexual sin. Our sexual sin is not a mistake or a whoops or a boys will be boys. It is an offense against the gracious and compassionate God. And so Jesus tells us we should treat our sin for what it is, something that is trying to kill us. This is why he's so radical about ridding yourself of temptation. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. In order to understand this, you have to see that Jesus is using hyperbole. He's not actually telling you to gouge your eye out or cut your hand off. The most obvious reason we know that is that a one-eyed person can lust just as easily as someone with two eyes. Physical mutilation does not actually keep you from sinning. Jesus isn't telling us to mutilate ourselves, but he is telling us something. Let's not undercut what he says by calling it hyperbole. He is telling us that we must be radical in our fight against our sin. Notice he makes a comparison. 
He says, it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And he calls us to see this betterness when we are tempted to be soft on our sin. It may feel dramatic to stop watching a TV show you love just because it has sexually explicit material in it. But it is better to not know the ending of the show than it is to give sin a foothold in your life. Maybe your smart, smartphone is a source of temptation for you. It may feel ridiculous to trade it in for a phone without internet access. But it is better to be inconvenienced and scoffed at than it is to become a slave to lust and pornography. You have a coworker who you know you are too close to and is a source of temptation. It would be such a big deal to look for a different job or switch departments, but it is better to change jobs than to walk down the path of sexual sin. The English pastor John Owen said it so well, you must always be killing your sin or it will be killing you. The Westminster Confession, speaking of believers in the task of sanctification, growing into Christ's likeness as his new creations, is both sobering and encouraging. First, it says this sanctification, this growth and holiness, is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part of you from which arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Your fight will always be imperfect in this life. Even as a Christian, your sinfulness will remain until you die or Jesus returns. The war with your sin is continual and irreconcilable in this life. But take heart, it goes on to say, in this war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome and so the saints grow in grace. The Lord commands us to make war on our remaining sin but he promises that we are not alone in that war. Our strength comes from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, and he will give you growth and progress in your fight. This is what Jesus teaches us about our lust. It is much worse and much more destructive than we want to admit. But for the Christian, every lust of your heart has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And so he now enables you to fight your lust by his spirit. The next two sections are a bit different than Jesus's words about lust and anger. In those passages, Jesus quoted one of the Ten Commandments and then showed us its true depth. In these passages on divorce and oaths, Jesus shows how the Pharisees have used even the words of God's law to try to circumvent true obedience and true righteousness. And he calls us, his disciples, to something more. Read verses 31 and 32 with me. 
It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus uses a shortened form of that same formula to start, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, which talks about what is required of a man who is going to divorce his wife. The law said that he couldn't just send her away, but he had to give her a certificate of divorce. Now, this is not the only place that Jesus talks about divorce. He speaks about it more extensively in Matthew chapter 19. So Jesus isn't saying everything there is to say about divorce here. But remember, in these passages, Jesus is correcting the way the scribes and Pharisees were using and abusing God's law. They weren't pursuing true righteousness. They were playing with God's law to achieve their own ends. In this passage, the scribes and Pharisees were abusing God's requirement that a man must give his wife a certificate of divorce to say that that was all that was required of him to divorce her. They made divorce extremely easy and normal. Rabbis were known to have said that it was fine to divorce your wife if she spoiled your food, or even if, quote, you found another fairer than she. They knew that God had already told them in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, that lifelong marriage is the ideal for marriage, but they had made divorce easy. Notice the connection to the previous passage about lust and adultery. A man sees another woman he wants, but he wants to avoid the sin of adultery. So he simply gives his wife a certificate of divorce and marries the new woman. But Jesus calls this careless approach to marriage adultery in verse 32. And so Jesus is again exposing their hearts and our hearts. The root of this easy approach to divorce, which is actually legalized in our culture since no-fault divorce, is our own dissatisfaction and covetousness. If you are married, you are married to an imperfect sinner. And so when you realize their imperfections, no matter how big or small, your heart can begin to long for things to be otherwise. Rather than the difficult road of forgiveness and repentance, maybe you start looking for a way out. Jesus shows them and us the seriousness of our flippant approach to marriage. Rather than avoiding adultery, it actually indicts us in adultery. But notice, it indicts others also. Jesus doesn't just say that you are committing adultery, but that you are causing your spouse to commit adultery by unrighteously ending your marriage. Jesus does know that a spouse's sexual immorality can legitimate, can be a legitimate grounds for divorce, and Paul mentions abandonment elsewhere. But Jesus calls us here in this passage not to use technicalities in God's law to find an easy way out of our marriage. Instead, he calls us to that long road of faithfulness and contentment 
with the spouse whom God has given to you. The next passage is similar to the one on divorce. Jesus is exposing the fact that the scribes and Pharisees are using pretend obedience to a part of God's law as a cover for their disobedience to the true meaning of God's law. Read verses 33 to 37 with me. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Again, the passage begins with Jesus' formula. Here he quotes either Leviticus 19, 12, or Numbers 30, verse 2. Both those passages warn of swearing a vow by the Lord and then breaking it. Most of you know what an oath or a vow is. It's usually a way to bind yourself to keeping your word. Sometimes we do this, sadly, because the person we are talking to has learned not to trust us. When one of my kids asks me if I'll read them a book in the morning and I say yes, and they say, do you promise? It's the sad truth that they have learned not to trust my word. They need something else, some extra layer of allegiance so that I will follow through. Vows also function as a public way to bind yourself to your word. When you are giving your word in a very public way and you are speaking, or you are asking rather people who don't know you personally to trust you, we often will take vows. This happens when someone takes a public position, like a police officer or a judge. But in both of those cases, both private and public, vows are extra layers binding you to your word being truthful and following through on what you said and what you are going to do. And you hear that, and then you hear Jesus' follow-up. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And it may seem, again, like Jesus is correcting God's law. You used to be able to take oaths, but not anymore. But context helps us understand this much better because it helps us understand what the scribes and Pharisees had been doing with oaths and vows. And Jesus himself actually tells us more about that context. In Matthew 23, when Jesus is pronouncing the woes on the scribes and Pharisees, he tells us what they were doing with vows. Listen to what he says, beginning in Matthew 23, 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven 
swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. What you see is that they had created an intricate structure of vows that were or were not binding. If you swore by the temple, that vow was not binding. You could break your word. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, that was binding. If you swore by the altar, that wasn't binding. But swearing by the gift that was on the altar was binding. And so on. They had zeroed in on a particular idea in God's law and twisted and used that idea as a cover for breaking the ninth commandment, which says that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It is a command for truthful and honest speech. The Pharisees used vows, which were meant to protect honest speech, as a workaround to allow them to violate God's command for honest speech. The reason this context is so helpful is because people want to absolutize what Jesus says here about oaths. Some people say that Jesus is saying it is wrong to ever take an oath. And so the Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation were forbidden from public office or being in the army because those involved taking oaths. The problem with this view is that God swears oaths in Scripture. Jesus himself speaks under oath at his trial, and the Apostle Paul called on God as his witness when he spoke on multiple occasions. Many of you said vows at your wedding, and almost all of you took a vow last week in this room to assist the Austins and the Borchards in raising their children in the Lord. It is key to realize that Jesus is not correcting God's law, which makes provision for vows. What he is correcting is the trickeration that the Pharisees used to get around God's law. And we may not have a sophisticated hierarchy of binding and non-binding oaths, but how often do the people around you ask you to double down on your word, like a child who asks you for a promise? How often do you do the adult equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back when you say something? How often do you try to word a text or an email in a very particular way that is meant to hide the truth rather than to communicate it? Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls his disciples to more. He calls us to the path of truthfulness and faithfulness. He calls us to be men and women whose word can be depended upon. All three of these passages call us to a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. We aren't called simply to avoid adultery, but to avoid all immoral sexual longings. We aren't to look for get-out-of-jail-free cards in our marriages, but are called to contentment with the spouse the Lord has given us, and love and compassion and forgiveness in the face of their shortcomings and sins. And we aren't to look for sophisticated ways to sneak around the truth. Instead, God calls us to be a people who are faithful to our word. This depth of the law shows us our need for Jesus. 
the reminder of our sins that the law brings before us can feel unbearable. For those of you who trust in Jesus, know that this law no longer stands over you to condemn you. Every one of your sins, your lust, your adultery, your divorce, your lying and deceit, every one of them was placed on Jesus at the cross. And now for those who are forgiven and recreated, we are enabled to walk with him. This was what our assurance of pardon was today. Jesus has put his spirit within us so that he might cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Brothers and sisters, your obedience to God's law isn't a way to appease him or gain his favor. No, it is the fruit of someone who has been saved by Christ and filled with his spirit. Let us walk with him together. You all pray with me. Father, we ask you that you would help us clear our eyes away so that we might see the true purpose of your law, not as a way to justify ourselves, but as the true path of life for those who are forgiven and freed from the bondage of sin. Lord, we pray that we would always look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, and in him find both our hope and our strength. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.